in his church and culture blog, James Emery White shares this, if all else fails in passing blame, there's always God to blame. He writes, the author Philip Yancey once was contacted by a television producer after the death of Princess Diana of England to appear on a show and explain how could God have possibly allowed such a tragic accident? Yancey asked the producer, could it have had something to do with the fact that the driver was drunk, going 90 miles an hour in a narrow tunnel? How exactly was God involved? From this, Yancey reflected on the pervasive nature of the mindset that our actions are actually an indictment of God, such as when boxer Ray Boom Boom Mancini killed a Korean boxer in a match. The athlete said in the press conference after, sometimes I wonder why God does the things He does. In a letter to a Christian family therapist, a young woman told of dating a man and became pregnant. She wanted to know why God allowed that to happen to her. In her official confession, when South Carolina mother Susan Smith pushed her two sons into a lake to drown. She said that as she did it, she went running after the car as it sped down the ramp screaming, Oh God, oh God, no! Why did you let this happen? Yancey raises the decisive question by asking, what exactly was the role God played when a boxer pummeled his opponent to death? when a teenager abandoned her virtue and became pregnant, or when a mother intentionally drowned her children. You see, my friends, God lets us choose, and we do. But our choices have often brought continual pain and heartache and destruction. Our self-destructive bent seems to know no bounds. We fall into many pitfalls in life. Because of our choices in this life, often our own self-destructive actions and choices cause our lives to end very badly. As we conclude our sermon series this morning, we look at the twelfth and final pitfall in this sermon series. We're going to take a look this morning at the pitfall of spiritual self-destruction, the pitfall of self-destruction. Oftentimes, what we don't realize is that the pitfalls we fall into that cause our lives to end badly is because of our own doing. Our own self-destructive actions are the cause. I like what Dr. Vilma Ruddock, a medical doctor, defines how she defines a self-destructive behavior. She defines it as a subconscious or intentional, perhaps impulsive or planned action or way of life that can cause physical or psychological harm. It is a complex, dysfunctional behavior that can escalate and lead to death in extreme cases. Early intervention and treatment can prevent this outcome. Of course, she is giving a medical clinical definition, but I like how Dr. Ruddick notes that early intervention can prevent the outcome. 
as we take a look this morning at the last four kings of Judah, we want to note their self-destructive actions for it to serve as a reminder and a warning to us of what we are to avoid. Because indeed, early intervention and avoidance can hopefully prevent a tragic outcome. Turn to me in your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the last chapter of our book study in 2 Chronicles, as we pick up the story after King Josiah's death. And if you remember from two weeks ago that King Josiah died suddenly because he didn't listen to Pharaoh Necho and the message God sent through him not to intervene as they passed through the land of Judah. And this is where we pick up the story in verses 1 and 2 of Second Chronicles chapter 36. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Josiah had at least four sons, and three of them became kings of Judah. The first of his sons to become king was Jehoahaz, whom verse 1 tells us the people made king soon after his father's death. Unfortunately, he reigned only three months. Why? Look at verse 3 and 4. Now the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother, Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. Apparently on his way back, Necho, pharaoh of Egypt, came and defeated Jehoahaz and took him captive to Egypt. He replaced Jehoahaz with one of his brothers, Eliakim, whom Necho renames Jehoiakim. And Judah was forced to pay taxes of 3.25 tons of silver and 75 pounds of gold. Why does the chronicler note these details? I think he notes it so that we can perhaps believe that with a tragic defeat by the hands of the Egyptians, that the king, the next king and his people would now turn to God as they always have. When the people of Israel were under subjugation by a foreign oppressor, they often cried out to God. Because God's way of dealing with His people has always been so simple. God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you turn to me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, if you turn away from me, I will discipline you. And so the natural response of a people that was under foreign subjugation and oppression would be to turn to God. And yet, look what happens in verse 5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. The Bible tells us his brother Jehoiakim, another son of Josiah, reigned 11 years, but unfortunately he was no better. He was a wicked king who did not follow in the ways of God. And what does God do? Look at verse 6 to 8. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. 
Nebuchadnezzar had also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did and what was found against him, indeed are they written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiakim was under the subjugation of the Egyptians and soon he was replaced when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, the rising power of the ancient Near East, came and drove the Egyptians away from the land of Palestine at around 605 B.C. But because Jehoiakim was evil, God now used the Babylonians to discipline His people, to put them under foreign oppression and subjugation. And it was during this time in 605 B.C. where you would chronologically put the exile of Daniel and his three friends in that first wave of exiles to be deported from the land and taken to Babylon. Jehoiakim was at first loyal to King Nebuchadnezzar, but somehow after three years, he decided to rebel against him, Second Kings 24 tells us. And so he was soon after taken captive to Babylon in shackles along with the holy objects of the temple. You know, when a people are not going to respect and honor the sacred things, God will have them taken away. The removing of the holy objects of the temple was a symbolic sign that God's hand of blessing was being removed from the nation. And soon Jehoiakim was replaced by Jehoiachin. Now, I know that these names can get very confusing. How did I memorize them when I was in seminary? I always referred to the first one as the Korean king and the second one as the Chinese king. You have a Kim and then you now you have a Chin. The mnemonics you use to try to memorize these names. The Chinese, quote-unquote, king of Judah, verse 9, Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Now I want to note a few things. If you were to read 2 Kings chapter 24, the parallel passage, there in 2 Kings he says that he was 18 years old when Jehoiachin became king. And this is most likely because in 2 Kings chapter 24, it told us that he had wives. But how can 2 Chronicles tell us that he was eight? There's a few reasons for this. It doesn't affect our belief in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. But in this supposedly seeming contradiction, which it is not, perhaps the chronicler was writing when Jehoiah Chin was a co-regent when he was eight, and he became king when he was 18, perhaps uh, when Jehoiakim was taken away. Or perhaps uh, it was a copyist error because eight and 18 is only differentiated by a stroke. And we believe that in, an, in the inerrancy of the Scriptures, it is the original manuscript that is without error, not the copies. But regardless of eight or 18, the Bible tells us Jehoiachin only reigned for three months and ten days. But that rule was enough for the chronicler to note in verse 9 that he did evil 
in the sight of the Lord. When you've got three months and ten days to rule, would you not try to rule your best? And he did. He ruled his best, but it was evil in the sight of the Lord. What a contrast to King Josiah, who at the age of 16 made a decision to follow God for the rest of his life. Again, because of their disobedience and evil, God disciplined them again. This time, Nebuchadnezzar took him and his family captive to Babylon, as verse 10 tells us, along with another group of 10,000 Jews with treasures from the temple. Now, why did I go through this progression of Judean kings? Because in this progression, you see how these kings' evil was now ingrained as part of their culture and as a part of their life. Kings before, there was always a good one that came out every so often. But now what you have is that it should not surprise you that these kings do evil in the sight of the Lord because now evil and wickedness was a part of their life. It was a way of life for them. You see, if you're taking notes, this is, number one, the first self-destructive action that we can extrapolate from these verses. Number one, when you allow evil to be ingrained as a way of life, when you allow evil and wickedness to be ingrained in your life as a way of life. That's why God can no longer bless His people because evil had worked its way into the culture and they could not differentiate what was good and what was bad. We talked about this a few weeks ago that how it only takes one or two generations for people to forget the Word of God. Well, it only takes one or two generations, not very long, for evil and worldly ways to be ingrained in your family, in your life, as a way of life. Are you shocked by sin? Do you tolerate sin? Because the cultural phenomenon today in the 21st century is just how far we as followers of Jesus Christ will tolerate sin. How often we will put up with sin until it begins to take hold in our life. And we cannot differentiate what the Scriptures say about what is good and what is bad. Let me give you an example. Just this past week, just this past week as some of you know, uh, Hugh Hefner passed away. Hugh Hefner was the founder of Playboy magazine. It was a magazine that sold pornography. It was he who made pornography available to many around the world to allow pornography to be commercially acceptable in vogue. How he propagated a lifestyle to be envied and to be followed. I'm a news junkie, so I like to watch a lot of news and read a lot of news, newspapers and magazines. When he died this week, I listened to some of the commentary of the various news outlets like CNN or BBC who spoke of his passing, and they spoke of him with such glowing remarks. They referred to Hugh Hefner as a visionary. They referred to him as one who was ahead of his times, one who lived a life we all secretly envied. And yet, here's the sad reality. The sad reality of today's world is that many of us, especially men, actually idolize this man. We wish we had his life. An old man 
who's able to sleep with beautiful women, some so young they could be his granddaughter. And yet this culture lauds a man, admires a man who takes what God has made sacred as a gift in marriage between husband and wife, and he has cheapened it. He takes what God has explicitly said was wrong in the Scriptures, and somehow in our culture, he and others, of course, have made it okay and acceptable. And you know what? He grew up in a Christian home. How did you respond when you heard about the passing of Hugh Hefner if that was something you knew about? If you are not reviled and disgusted by the actions and the legacy of this man which has destroyed millions of lives and caused them to sin, if that doesn't bother you, then you slowly are allowing evil and wickedness to become ingrained as a part of your life. Hugh Hefner had the answer to his creator this past week. How he lived his life is between him and God. But one day we will be called back home to answer to our creator. And perhaps he will ask us, how did you allow evil and wickedness to be ingrained in your life? Be careful, my friends. It's a warning. It is a self-destructive action when you allow evil and wickedness to grab a hold of your life. Are you revolted by sin? Do you tolerate it? Are you shocked by its presence? Because how you respond to sin, how I respond to sin, says a lot about my life, my spiritual life. And it is a destructive path when you subtly allow yourself to have evil and wicked ways become acceptable part of your daily life. That's what's happened to these Judean kings. For them, wickedness was now simply the norm, and all the kings, one after each other, practice wickedness. Look at verse 11 with me. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Not surprisingly, verse 12, he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the God Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The final king of Israel, the very last one, was Zedekiah. He was another of Josiah's son, and the Bible tells us in verse 11 he ruled for 11 years. He also did not follow the ways of God, and he lived an evil life. This man wasn't very smart. He was so unwise that history tells us that he decided to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar in his ninth year of reign. He would go up against a superior nation. Now, it's okay if God tells you 
to go up against a superior nation that he will help you. It's okay if you seek God for help, but I want you to see something very telling in verse 13. The Bible tells us that Zedekiah stiffened his neck and hardened his heart to ask God for help. He decided to rebel against the Babylonians, to put his armies against an overwhelmingly larger force, and yet he could not humble himself enough to ask the Lord God of heaven for help. What a contrast to his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah. Do you remember King Hezekiah? When the great Assyrian armies were at the doorsteps of Jerusalem, Hezekiah cried out for help, and what did God do? God sent an angel, and that very night, the angel of the Lord wiped out 185,000 men of the Assyrian armies. Sometimes as you read this, you almost want to shout out, Zedekiah, do what Hezekiah does. Ask for help. But in his own self-destructive action, the Bible tells us what characterized the Judean king's hearts towards the end was a hardness of heart that could not be corrected, a hardness of heart that could not be taught and could not be humble. The pride of their hearts caused its hardening and in turn, with hardened hearts, they would not even seek God for help. The second action, number two, that leads us into the pitfall of self-destruction is the hardening of our hearts to not allow for humble correction and trusting of God. The second self-destructive action as exemplified by these kings is a hardening of hearts that do not allow for humble correction and trusting of God. Now you may tell me, Pastor, there is no way I will ever get to that point. I ask God for help in everything. I ask Him for help in tests I haven't studied for. I ask Him for help in securing business uh, opportunities and business deals. I ask God for help in everything. There will never come a point in my life where I will be so hardened in my heart that I will not ask God for help. I want you to be very careful if you think like that. Because your life and my life may not be very far off if we don't guard our hearts from its hardening. If you and I have a self-propensity, a self-destructive propensity of not turning to God when we are corrected, when we are taught, when we are rebuked, then we are already on the path towards the hardening of our hearts. You see, the hardening of our hearts can simply be seen in our action of not changing or not wanting to be transformed. A hardened heart can still ask God to do things for him, but then God cannot move. But the natural process of hardening is some, it's not some sort of nebulous concept. It's when you no longer desire to change, when there is no desire for transformation, then your heart is already on the natural process of being hardened. I'm sure you've, you've heard it said that uh, if after a period of time you do something or you don't do something, it becomes a habit. Uh, research has been done that if you do something or don't do something for 30 days, then it becomes a habit. 
Well, the hardening of one's heart is very similar. If we don't allow ourselves to be transformed by the Holy Spirit daily, then day after day, week after week of not allowing the Spirit to work in our hearts, our hearts naturally become hardened. The prime example many people would point to to the hardening of one's heart is, of course, Pharaoh. In the book of Exodus, when he would not allow the Israelites to leave Egypt. Now, you may say to yourself, why did it take 10 plagues for him to finally let the Israelites leave the land of Goshen? You know, if I put myself in Pharaoh's position, I would have let them go after the fourth, fifth, or sixth plagues. I don't like lice. I don't like frogs. Why? Why was he so stubborn? Couldn't he see what was happening all around him as a supernatural manifestation of God's power? Why did he wait until the taking of his firstborn son? It's real simple. When you say no to God the first few times, it simply gets easier. When you tell God no, no, I think I'm a good. When you tell God no, when you keep saying no, the first few times you struggle with it, the last few times it's just easy. That's why Pharaoh, the Bible says very clearly, hardened his heart. Avoid this pitfall of self-destruction. Do not allow yourself not to be humbly corrected and to take trust away from God. The less you allow yourself to change, to be transformed, or to trust God, the harder naturally your heart will get. I know that once you and I are set in our ways, especially with age, it's simply harder to change. That's why there's an old saying, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. But is that true? It's harder to teach old dogs new tricks. It's not impossible. If someone is motivated to do something, they'll do it. It's like my mother, who is the most technologically, uh, how shall we say, uh, challenged of our family. For years, we've tried to get her to use Skype or Messenger to be able to communicate with us, she in the U.S., we in the Philippines, but she had no motivation to try to learn. She just simply said, I'm too old for this, this is too hard. But when did she start learning to use Skype and Messenger? When she wanted to see and talk to her grandkids, not to us, but to her grandchildren. Now she had motivation, and she learned it real quick. She learned how to use it. Motivation is often the key. You know that. If someone wants to learn something new, they'll do it if there's a motivation. But if they don't want to learn something, then they'll give a thousand and one excuses why they can't do it. I hope your motivation in the Christian life is so that you will not end badly. I hope your, your motivation is that you will continually be challenged to change, to be transformed, to be Christ-like at any age so that you will not fall into the pitfall of self-destruction. Because if that motivation isn't there and that willingness isn't there, then you are unwittingly already hardening your heart. 
In Matt Duzemensky's article, 12 Signs of Self-Destructive People, he notes this is number three, the practice of forced incompetence. What in the world is that? He writes, the most common example I can think of to illustrate forced incompetence is when a student, or adult for that matter, says, I'm just not a math person. While some people do have a natural gift for certain skills, these gifts mean nothing if they are not practiced. Just because you're not a math person or not very musical doesn't mean you'll never be able to learn these skills. Sure, it might be more difficult for you than it is for others, but that's all the more reason to be proud of yourself for working hard and achieving something. If every player in the NBA quit just because they're not as good as Michael Jordan, there wouldn't be enough players in the league to field a single team. We practice forced incompetence in our spiritual life. You know how? When we tell ourselves and we tell others, I'm just not a very spiritual person. I just don't come from a very religious, spiritual family. I just don't have a close walk with God. My parents aren't believers. My husband isn't a Christian. My wife isn't a believer. Forced incompetence is a self-destructive sign. You see, my friends, the hardening of one's heart is inversely proportional to the motivation of his desire to be transformed and changed. Let me repeat that. The hardening of one's heart is inversely proportional to the motivation of his desire to be transformed and changed. If you desire to be transformed and changed, you will not have a hardened heart. But if you do not want to be transformed or changed, then the hardening comes naturally. Verse 14 tells us that it wasn't only the king who had hardened their hearts. The people refused to change. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the peoples transgressed, note this, more and more according to the abominations of the nations, according to the people around them. They refuse to change. Now, what's the danger of this? Well, the danger of this is real simple. God disciplines the proud. God humbles the proud. And with the Jewish people, He will use the Babylonians to do so. With us, who knows the techniques He will use to humble us because He loves us. But mind you, my friends, I want to warn you now. You do not want to be disciplined by God. I've been disciplined by God. It is not a fun event. God will take you to your pits so that He can build you up in the way He wants you. But don't allow God to have you go through something like that. And that's why we need to be self-aware to avoid these self-destructive actions. One would think that God in His patience had run out. God's mercy and grace had run out. But to our surprise, 
He gives them one last chance. Look at verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warning to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them, note this, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. God was so merciful and compassionate to give His people chance after chance Even though evil and wickedness was now a way of life, even though their hearts were hardened, God still sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, because verse 15 tells us the heart of God is a heart of compassion. He cared for them. But to no avail, look at the response in verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. They openly made fun of God and his word through his messenger. They mocked the message of God. And that is the third self-destructive action that would bring about a very bad ending for them. Number three. They mocked God and His message. They mocked God and His message. Now, you're going to tell me as you're sitting there, as you're thinking, I would never mock God. I would never mock and make fun of the message of God. Well, truth be told, when I read this, I thought the same thing. But then the Spirit convicted me this week. We all do it if we're not careful. If we somehow think that the Bible is old-fashioned, that there's nothing in this book that, that can help us or relate to us in this culture, then we're mocking the Scriptures. If I don't care enough about this Word of God to bring a Bible on a Sunday or even to open it on a weekday, then I'm mocking God in His Word because I'm saying through my actions, I don't care what the Word of God says. If I have the notion and the mindset that this book is useless because it was written hundreds of years ago and it has no bearing or understanding of what the culture has to say, then I'm mocking God in His Word. You know, we also mock God and we make fun of Him when we confess our sins and we repent, but we simply do it again. We mock God when we say, oh, we'll never cheat again. We'll never lust after that woman or that man, but we take no concrete action not to do it. How many of you have ever prayed the prayer? I know I have thousands of times. Lord, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I will never do it again. We all pray that prayer. And guess what happens next week? We do it again. Because we have taken no concrete action to change our lives, not to do it again. That's mocking God. Why? Because how many of you have prayed that prayer knowing you will do it again? Many. Many of us pray that prayer knowing that soon we will commit that sin again. And it mocks the name of the Lord because He knows our hearts. The one who looks into our hearts and knows the deepest thoughts, don't you think that He knows whether we are genuine with our repentance or not? Because genuine repentance comes with it 
action. Action. Are you willing to cut off, if you have a pornography problem, your social media access? Are you willing to get rid of the internet? Because if you aren't, then your forgiveness, your, your confession before God, your repentance before God is mocking God. You're not really sorry. You're just sorry you got caught. You're just sorry you feel bad. Maybe you're sorry that you know it's wrong, but if you know it's wrong and ask God for forgiveness, but do nothing to try to alleviate that problem, you're mocking God in His Word. Are you willing to adjust your schedule or give up some of your activities if you resolve to follow God and serve Him? I get told this so many times, Pastor, I want to serve God more, but I just don't have time. I wonder what God thinks when He hears that coming out of our mouths. Many of us are just playing around with God. You have time. Time is in your hands. Your schedule is in your hands. If you really want to serve God, then you will have to cut out some things in your life. Less social events. Something, perhaps that's a hobby that takes up too much of your time. If you really, really mean that you want to serve God, then something's got to give. And because you are not willing to make that change, even if your heart and your very best intentions say, I want to serve God with a greater capacity, can I just tell this bluntly? You're just mocking God. It's a big joke. In Chinese, call it kaiwan xiao. It's, it's a joke. Because the God who knows our hearts, who sees all that we do, He's omniscient. I wonder what He thinks when He looks at our lives and we say these beautiful words that make us feel good, but the actions don't come with it. I wonder what He thinks. They are mocking me because they don't think I know what's happening. Something to think about. So you and I are guilty of this, just like the people of Israel. For the Lord, this action of mocking Him and His message is the proverbial straw, the final straw that broke the camel's back. God said, enough, enough. God was merciful and God was compassionate, but they spat back at God with their open rebellion and mockery of Him. Would you note this in the verse 16? I've got this underlined, highlighted, starred, because it just popped up in my mind. Until the wrath of the Lord rose up against His people, till there was no remedy. What's it saying here? It's saying theologically, while God is a God of compassion and a God of grace and a God of love, there is a point when God's patience runs out. There is a point when if you keep on doing what you're doing, God says, enough. And there's no more pleading that you can do after God's punishment comes down where he will say, okay, I'll give you one more chance. 
That is theologically true as it relates to God because we forget that. Yes, you can ask God to forgive your sins and He will always forgive our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but the consequences that come from our sins is something that God in His right and in His justice can dole out. The wrath of the Lord rose against His people. There was no more remedy. That's it. Enough is enough. You know, as children, or when you were once children, you know, you know how far you can push your parents until your parents get to that point where they say enough. And you know you do not push them again because the next thing that come out of their mouth will stick. You know what I'm talking about. And it is at this moment that God says, enough, that's it. I've given you hundreds of years, generation after generation. I've sent the prophets and I've sent the messengers. You mock them, enough. And the reason I'm stressing this point is you do not want to play the game where you get to that point with God and God says, enough. No more of these games. This is my punishment. I know we like to talk about grace. We like to talk about mercy, the unconditional love of God. It is because God is so loving of us that He would send these disciplines into our life so that we will no longer sin. Proverbs 3.34, God mocks the mockers but is gracious to the humble. You see, the people had fallen into the last pit and this time they would not be coming out. Avoid the pitfall of self-destruction. Avoid this self-destructive action of mocking God and His Word. Look what He does. I know it's a long passage, but I want to read this. Verse 17 to 21. Therefore, God brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had, note this, no compassion. Unlike God, this time there would be no more compassion. He had no compassion on young men or virgins, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. Wow. No mercy. That's it. And had all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all those he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. To a people who had forgotten how holy the temple was to be and how they brought in idols to defile God's place. God says, if you don't respect my holy city and this holy temple, fine, it's destroyed. It's destroyed. And those who escaped, verse 20, from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, not so that they could have a great life, where they become servants and slaves to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Note this. To fulfill the word of the Lord. God had already warned them by the mouth of Jeremiah. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 
It's almost shocking when you read verses 17 to 21. Lord, what happened? You want to say, Lord, Lord, relax. Please give them one more chance. I'm sure while they are being massacred that these people were crying out to God, 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 we're so sorry. One more time, just one more time. We've learned our lesson. God said, I'm sorry. It's already passed. The time for remedy has passed. And if you were to read history at what the Babylonians did to the Jewish people, you would be shocked what they did. It was so bad that even a prophet of God, his name was Habakkuk, he wrote a book. Habakkuk was so shocked by how God used the Babylonians to utterly destroy his people that he could not believe and he questioned God, God, how can you? How can you use the savage Babylonians to do this to your people? And God said, Habakkuk, remember, gave them a chance. You know, it's the same questions we ask all the time. How can a loving God condemn people to hell? Well, guess what? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It works the same way. Same God, same principle. A loving God does not want anyone to go to hell. And He sends people like you and me and missionaries, and He sends lay people to bring forth the good news of salvation. But a holy God can have nothing to do with sin, and so this is rightful wrath. And the Bible tells us, as history corroborates in 586 B.C., the Babylonians wiped out the kingdom of Judah. So sad that even the prophet Jeremiah wept. Don't blame God. This is not God's doing. God gave them chance after chance, but their self-destructive actions led to this. I hope it serves as a warning to us that when we come to the end of our life and we wonder what happened, we don't blame God because our actions determine how we live this life. I don't want to end on such a sad note, this book, and the chronicler doesn't. If you were to read verses 22 to 23, the book does not end with the failures of mankind, but still with the goodness and faithfulness of God who keeps His promise and returns the next generation of people back to the land after 70 years of exile under the Persian king Cyrus. But for that generation that openly mocked God, they suffered the consequences of their self-destructive actions. You know, we love to look at the lives of others. We're so nosy about the lives of other people, movie stars who had a promising young career. I'm sure you've clicked on those clickbait ads or articles. What happened to the child stars of the 80s and 90s? I know you've clicked those. You look at them, they're all drugged up or and, and we say, ah, oh, if they only had not met this friend, if they only did not do this, we're good at that. We're good at assessing other people's lives. We look at businessmen who are rising up the ranks. They achieve great things at a young age, and they lose everything because of greed or corruption. We look at the lives of spiritual men and women who were so earnest to live for the Lord, we would even comment when they were in high school, they faithfully attended morning dev. But what happened to them? 
Oh, they got involved in this and that, friends. And as, as outsiders, we love to assess and we can easily pinpoint the failure points of other people's lives. But I want you to understand that if we're so good at that, you better look at your own life to assess your own life and be aware of your own self-destructive actions. Have you allowed evil and wickedness to be a part of your life? Do you tolerate sin in your life? Have you hardened your heart to a point where you don't allow God to transform your life, to humbly allow for correction in your life, to be motivated enough to change what is wrong to do what is right? Because if that change doesn't come, then our hearts are naturally becoming hardened. Have we mocked God in His Word by disregarding it or taking God to be the fool as we employ fake changes in our lives? Those are things you and I need to recognize in our own lives so that we can avoid the pitfall of self-destruction and finish well. It's my prayer that all of us finish well but we must be aware of how we live our lives. How wonderful it is that God provides a solution to allow us to start over before it's too late through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we just come to Him and tell Him, Lord, we recognize our sin. We want to really change. And if there are actions in my life that need to happen so that I will no longer habitually live out these things. I want to change. And when I walk out of these doors, I'm going to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It's, it's touched my life as well. Lord, uh, it's a hard message to preach because we're so good at looking at the lives of others, seeing where they fall. You've given us in Scripture how areas in our life we can easily fall on our spiritual swords. I pray this morning you would use your word to convict and touch the lives of men and women in our church to avoid the pitfall of self-destruction, to open up our hearts and our minds, to allow the spirit to change us and to challenge us. We do want to live a Christ-like life. We do want to finish well. We want it to be said of us when we leave this earth here was a man, here was a woman who brought such Christ-likeness to his family and his friends and his community and made an impact in this world. Not negatively, but positively. He or she will be missed. Help us to learn from the Judean kings for how we should learn from their mistakes. Never get to the point where you say of our life, enough. He's past the point of no return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.